May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Each of the four Gospels includes one of these stories of Jesus being anointed with perfume or costly oil. In Matthew and Mark, it's an unnamed woman who comes to the home of Simon the leper to anoint the head of Jesus. In Luke, it's a woman who was a sinner. That's the phrase. A woman who was a sinner who enters the house of a Pharisee where Jesus was eating. And she bathes his feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then anoints them with ointment. An even more scandalously personal act offered by a woman with some sort of a reputation. And now, here in the Gospel according to John, the scene is set in the home of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. It takes place after the story of the raising of Lazarus and just before Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on the donkey. And in a sense, it serves as both a party celebrating the life that Jesus has given back to Lazarus and as a farewell dinner shared amongst friends. So, a very basic question. Is this an instance of four gospel writers offering three different versions of one event? Or did something like this actually happen more than once? Put another way, like an ancient world version of the kids' party game of telephone, did one story evolve and morph and become, in effect, three different stories? From a strictly academic or scholarly point of view, it's impossible to know for sure. One of my seminary professors once observed that biblical scholars tend to be great fans of murder mysteries and detective stories. That by disposition, biblical scholars are people who like to puzzle out the possibilities, sometimes endlessly and often to no good end. Meaning, no offense to anyone here who is either a biblical scholar or a fan of murder mysteries, I'm of the opinion that that sort of an approach to the scriptures actually leads us down a blind alley. With its overarching theme of the audacity of grace and forgiveness, Luke's story of that woman who was a sinner who enters the home of the Pharisee does seem to have its own unique character. And whatever parallels there are between the other two basic accounts, as John offers us his version, it comes with its own integrity, its own power. So rather than getting caught up in academic gymnastics, the more pressing challenge, I think, is simply to hear the gospel truth that John is seeking to tell us. It seems a simple enough scene. Jesus and his disciples are at dinner in the home of their friends in Bethany. Martha served, John tells us, which is the role we already know from the earlier story, very typical to her. And then out of nowhere, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. Two things to note here. Anointing the head of a guest 
was a customary sign of respect and hospitality. The anointing of the feet was extraordinary. Yes, to offer water and a towel for a visitor to wash his or her dusty feet was good form. To actually wash the feet of a guest was the work of a servant, and only wealthy people had servants. But to take perfumed oil and to anoint the feet of a guest was not a customary thing at all. This was an extravagant thing. Mary not only offered this anointing, but she also let down her hair to wipe his feet. And for a woman to loosen or let down her hair in the presence of a man other than her husband was an act of considerable immodesty. And to do so at table with others present, watching, was the sort of thing that could get the rumor mill seriously churning. But evidently, at this moment, Mary could care less. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, John adds. And in a world normally filled with the strong odors of human bodies, domestic animals, and roasting food, for a house to be filled with the fragrance of perfume is no small detail. Together with the visual description of what Mary is doing, it signals the grand scale of this gesture. Of course it's outrageous, over the top, comments N.T. Wright. Of course it's outrageous. That's the point. Brothers don't get raised from the dead every day. The reactions of most of the people in the room are not recorded. Maybe they were all too stunned, too astonished to do anything, but stand watching with their mouths hanging open. The reaction of one person, though, is noted. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now, it's not an altogether bad question to ask. I mean, a denarius was a day's pay for a common worker. So we're talking about a fairly substantial amount of money being used on this ointment. You can imagine someone like the prophet Amos, in fact, asking a question very much like that one. Where are your priorities? Ointment on the feet while the women and orphans go hungry on the streets. Like that, that Old Testament prophetic fervor, right? This past week... Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove told some of us a story about the Baptist radical Clarence Jordan being given a tour of a big church. And at the end of the tour, the pastor proudly pointed up to the pinnacle of the church steeple, to the cross that was there, and announced to Clarence Jordan that the congregation had spent $10,000 on that cross. You got ripped off, Jordan answered. Time was Christians could get their crosses for free. Hmm. John, though, is pretty clear that Judas is motiv motivated neither by the mischievous kind of critique 
of a Clarence Jordan, nor by the prophetic fervor of an Amos. Judas said this, John notes, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. That's the first substantial appearance of Judas in John's narrative. John means to show us just how compromised is this character. Jesus turned, looked at Judas and said, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. She bought it to anoint me for death, he says, which, though that's still a week or so off, it's already a foregone conclusion. Now, would Mary have had any clue that that's what she was actually doing, anointing him for his death and burial? That it was not really the life of Lazarus that was being celebrated at this dinner, but rather it was the death of Jesus that was in view? Probably not. Mary probably didn't have any idea. But as John builds his story... This event does point forward to what will follow. This not only in terms of the act of anointing Jesus for his burial, but also as an anticipation of Jesus himself getting down on his knees at the Last Supper to wash the feet of his disciples and to tell them that this was a model for the Christian life. And then follows that line. It's the line that the gospel ended with tonight. That troubling and oftentimes misused line. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You always have the poor with you. We need to be careful about how we hear that sentence. It isn't offered as a suggestion that poverty is therefore a part of God's plan, nor is it an excuse to get us all off the hook. I mean, seriously, if Jesus has framed the whole of his ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah's words about good news to the poor, release to captives, sight to blind, freedom to the oppressed, it's pretty hard to imagine that we can then receive these words as justifying some indifference to poverty or to suffering. No, it's not about indifference, but rather simply a description of the world's tragic reality this side of the kingdom. 2,000 years ago, there was poverty. There is now in our city and country deep poverty and throughout the world more living in poverty than the ancient world could have begun to imagine. It's just a description, not an excuse. And it would seem that on this side of the kingdom, Jesus has also made a place for acts and offerings of beauty and of self-giving. I'm drawn here by how Calvin Seerveld engages this picture of Mary's action. As Cal suggests that when art is crafted for God and neighbor, it is spilled like an offering of perfume 
as this woman did, art created for God and neighbor, like that audacious offering of this thing of beauty. Can you think, then, of one of Gord's songs, or one of Jody Penner's mosaics, or Lola Ides' hand-done liturgy cards that we use week after week after week, or the Stations of the Cross, the, the, the prints that Helen Lyons did? Can you think of all of those acts of art as being like Mary's spilling of perfume on the feet of her Lord? The time, the energy, the financial resources that went into producing projects like our Lent book, our Advent book, or Beautiful Mercy, that collection of art and music and writing. Why didn't we take all of that time, all of that energy, all of those financial resources and put them to some more practical use? And so, says Cal Searveld, some will be tempted to ask, Do we need all of this art stuff at all? All of that money can be saved to mount an evangelism campaign or be given to the starving poor in sub-Saharan Africa. And then as quickly as Cal sets up that line, he then answers his own question, saying, Such well-fed critics of the arts, says Christ sharply, will always have a ghetto outside of their neighborhood which they can remedy any time they put their mind to it. And then this, Do not make it so hard, my friends, for them to spill their perfume over my body, says the Christ, over my often tired, beleaguered, recalcitrant, yet expectant people, or even spill the perfume over the neighbors who maybe never had anything beautiful done to them either. Such little artistic acts of love are worth remembering. Mary's act that day for Jesus is a scandalous, bold, and beautiful offering of her love for Jesus. It's an artful act Rich with symbolism and significance, she herself could not have yet grasped. And it's accepted by Jesus, embraced by him, in fact. It's remembered by those who witnessed it and so told and retold. And it's honored, her act is honored this night by we who read this story so many centuries later. Against her act the offering of a song, the creation of a painting, the writing of a poem, against that, the words of Judas are a hollow lie. But they too have a significance he could not have comprehended. They are words that point to how Judas will continue. And here I am quoting N.T. Wright again. How Judas will continue to go on choosing a world which revolves around himself which then itself deconstructs. Judas symbolizes the way of self-destruction, just as Mary stands for the way of self-giving. Both are costly, but in utterly different ways. Don't hear anything in this story 
that even begins to suggest that we should forget the hunger of the world, the hungry stomachs of the neighborhood, but realize, too, that there's something in it in which Jesus speaks to hungry hearts and hungry imaginations who can embrace an act so artful as the spilling out of oil or the offering of a song, a story, a word, a painting as speaking to a different kind of deep hunger, deep longing in the soul of the world. Amen.